Well, it's lovely actually to be back in, in Fitzroy. A lot of memories came back. I, it's over 20 years ago now since I did a Bible week here. And you know that journey goes on. It, it's lovely to come back to places where you in a sense, you know, feel there are roots. And of course, there's so many of you have become, well, very close friends down through the years. Now, this morning, well, actually, I couldn't help but think. A friend was telling me this week about two cross-eyed men who bumped into each other. And one immediately responded, would you look where you're going? The other replied, would you go where you're looking? <laughs> well, for a little while over these two weeks, we want to look at where Israel has been. Now, we're going to... Well, do you ever open the Bible and you wonder, what on earth is going on? How do all the bits and pieces fit together? Because there just seems to be so many little people, and then there are big stories on a national level, and you begin to think, what gives it, well, integration? What gives it cohesion? And maybe it's been incredibly simple, but I love to think in, in pictures. And for me, when, when I open Genesis, it's as if I'm beginning a journey on a roadway, and actually that roadway's not finished yet. Because this roadway is taking you from creation to consummation and beyond that. You might call it God's unfolding plan. I like the picture of a road because it gives me the, the sense that you and I can join this road. This is the road which the patriarchs had walked on, that Moses had walked on, that Jesus walked on, the apostles, the early church walked on. This is a great unfolding plan. And it's this understanding of the roadway that helps me to see that, you know, salvation is not a one-night stand with Jesus. But it's being drawn into the fabric of this great unfolding plan down through the years. And over against the sort of the incredible individualism of what we call post-modernity that just insists on the legitimacy of your little story and your little story and my little story, but wants to deny the big story, wants to deny that there is a, a meta-narrative, there is a story that God's in control of. This road keeps me focused because it keeps reminding me there is a plan unfolding. And that's particularly helpful when you turn on the 10 o'clock news and you begin to have a sense the world's collapsing around us, that there is a bigger story. Because that big story, well, such is the nature of it, that in the early stages, well, we know God's known the end from the beginning. That's what makes our scripture and our faith so distinct. It's not like some Eastern mystical reincarnational theology that maybe offers you the hope of breaking out of the cycle sometime and achieving nirvana. But quite the opposite. No, God is no, has known where he's going. From the beginning, there is a rest at the end of the journey. There's a rest at the end of the story. We might not be able to understand everything that's going on now, but this wonderful sense that he's in control. And because he's known the end from the beginning, that means as I open my Hebrew Bible, as we open the Jewish scriptures, we get a sense that we're learning so much. Then there comes that pivotal time in, in God's unfolding plan, 
where he literally touches the ground, where he puts his feet on this roadway. When Jesus comes, and that event is interpreted for us in the new covenant, where we've got so much more. You see, the richness of journeying along this pathway, and this is why we need to develop that art of listening to the whole Bible, to listening to God as it were in stereo. There are just so many people persistently say he speaks in mono. Oh, we're New Testament believers. But that's like stubbornly saying, I will only listen to one speaker in my stereo. I'll only put one earplug in and my iPod. When we're robbing ourselves of the richness, if we just come back to see the richness of what he's saying. And from that point of view, well, let me suggest to you as we handle our Bibles as a whole, we always need to know where on earth we are. Or where on earth we are in the big picture. And that's where we need the sat-nav. Sat-navs are wonderful gadgets, aren't they? They're wonderful to play with. I discovered, the first time I ever discovered one, I was traveling with a friend in a car. I just thought it was him and me. Until we came up to a roundabout, and this voice suddenly says, you're 50 meters from a roundabout. I, I literally rose off the seat. Where'd this other voice come from? I'd never heard or seen of Satnav until that day. But this sense, somebody knows where you are. Somebody's in control of a bigger picture. Here you are, you're in Muckamore, you can't see further than the hedges around you, but somebody knows exactly where you are. So when we're reading the Bible, we need to be so careful to be able to, yes, locate ourselves in the particularity of a locality and a historical situation, but no, there's a bigger picture. See, you're always toggling as you read the Bible between the particularity of one person in one place, in one locality, which is very real, geography is real, but at the other side, the vast cosmic picture, that there is something much bigger here, that the particular fits into the universal, the local fits into this much bigger and cosmic drama. The tragedy is when the Bible's on the one hand, either reduced to, well, a little letter to me, and everything's reduced to what happens to me, and the other extreme is that, well, really, it becomes so impersonal, it's ignored. Now, we've got to, to toggle between these two. Now, where we're going in the big plan, just for a little while over these couple of Sundays, is we want to locate ourselves specifically in the wilderness. It might not be the nicest place to be, but it's a profoundly relevant place to be in God's plan because it's in the wilderness he does some teaching. I love to think of the first five books in many ways as like a kindergarten. Now look at how God brings his people into that kindergarten. Our story starts with Genesis and Ur. We travel up the Mesopotamian Valley into the Promised Land. By the end of Genesis, we come down into Egypt. Exodus brings us out of Egypt, down into the Sinai Peninsula. The book of Numbers is bringing us on a journey through the desert 
before Deuteronomy brings us back onto the east bank of the Jordan again. You see this lovely sort of anti-clockwise movement through these first five books of the Bible. That's why you can't read the first five books of the Bible without your hiking boots. You need to be on the go. Where God is journeying towards the fulfillment of his promise, there is movement. And as you follow Israel, the interesting thing is there wasn't a traditional written site in the desert, though they walked about it for 40 years. You know, I often think when you you come to, to look at biblical history, if the Israelites, well, if they had come to Sinai, if the Israelites had come to Sinai as a little group of Irish Catholics, well, they would have built a shrine there and they would have gone back to that shrine. If the Israelites had been a little group of Ulster prods, well, you can be sure they would have built a traditional route through the desert and they've been marching back there every year ever since. The desert, when we come to look at it, is a fascinating place to be. And the interesting thing is that the fourth book of the Bible that we call Numbers in the Hebrew Bible is actually, well, it has a name that reflects the content more accurately. It is called In the Wilderness, Ba-Midbar. About two centuries before Jesus, one of the Ptolemies who were ruling Egypt wanted a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, so he commissioned this translation, and, and Greek scholars rendered this, well, they read this fourth book of the Bible, and they, they reflecting the sort of the, the, the classifications that, that characterize the Greek mind, well, the first chapter was about numbers and counting, so they called it arithmoi, they called it numbers. But it's much more accurate when you come to see this book as called In the Wilderness. Because it's in the wilderness, as we go into the wilderness, we're on a journey. That journey is ultimately, the, the wilderness is not an end in itself, we're going towards the promised land. We're journeying with Israel as a nation, an army. And when they look back, there has been the reality of God's intrusion into their history, the Exodus event. Well, look at what happens there, where the man of God's choice intervenes into history through a series of confrontations and the plagues. He confronts the deity of the day, the Pharaoh, and then Israel is liberated. They're to journey on towards the promised land. But before they get to the promise, they must come through the wilderness. It's there we want to stop and explore for a little while God's kindergarten. Because before we go into the wilderness, it's as if God puts up some warning signs. Because this is a place where he's going to teach some lessons. And as we'll see next week, it's fascinating that the first century writer of the book of Hebrews takes the first century believers back into the wilderness to warn them lest they make the same mistakes. And have you noticed that reading that Peter read earlier on? I think one of the most astounding little words that we find in Paul's writings. I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that 
our forefathers. You ever notice that little hour? That little hour captivates me. Because here's the Apostle Paul, a Jew, an ardent Jew, who had met the risen Lord, now ministering in the name of Jesus, talking to these people in the secular sophistication of first century Corinth, looking back to what happened to the Hebrews, to the Israelites in the desert, and says, our forefathers. It's almost as if Paul is doing for these early Christians what Alex Haley did for black America when he wrote Roots. He says, your faith has roots. You didn't come out of nowhere. Your faith has a beginning. And we desperately need to understand that today, that our faith has roots. And that, well, one of the big discoveries for me, and it came as a shock to me growing up in Balamina, that actually Moses crossing the Red Sea was more definitive for my faith than Billy crossing the Boyne. That if I'm going to understand where my faith has come from, then, well, I need to be constantly praying. You know that lovely line from Jared Manley Hopkins, Lord of life, send my roots rain. What are my roots that I may see where my faith has come from? And that my walk with you is not just isolated. It is something that is absolutely rooted in history. I am journeying on this road that started so many years ago. So it's not accidental that both Paul and the writer to Hebrew, uh, the Hebrews reminds them there are lessons to be learned here in kindergarten. Never forget the kindergarten. You know, we tend to, well, with a certain New Testament type of almost, almost arrogance at times, feel we don't need this earlier part of the Bible. And I think that's a tragedy, because we miss out so much. When you go back to kindergarten, we, you're reminded of some fundamental truths. You remember how you learned two and two made four? You had a yellow block and a green one and a blue one and a black one. Well, I often wondered when I, when I used to work in Dunmurray, and you'd occasionally meet Alan Hibbert, who was a professor of maths here in Queens. And I often met Al, uh, Alan and I thought, I wonder what he has in his briefcase. Does he still carry his blocks around? By the time you get to doing postgraduate research in mathematics, you've left your blocks behind, usually. But the fundamental truths that you learnt in kindergarten, you haven't rejected. For two and two still make four. You might understand that in a new way. You might have internalised that truth in a new way. You might have come to appreciate it at a new level, but never ever treat in a deprecatory way fundamental truths that you had learned. And so it's tinged with arrogance, I think, when, when Christians say, oh, we're New Testament believers, we don't need... And those who do sometimes go back to them, they go back either to moralise or allegorise or spiritualise and don't treat the history seriously. No, let's go back into kindergarten and treat 
the history seriously. So as we come back into this kindergarten, it's a stage on which a remarkable drama was acted out. A remarkable drama where God, by the power of his word, was confronting the Israelite. And you see the drama of the power of God entering into the lives of these people. When we come out into the wilderness, we discover both revelation and rebellion. It's a place where we meet both. And can I suggest to you this morning, as we think about straddling the Bible as a whole, that we learn to develop the, the listening capacity, the stereo capacity, that when we're out in the desert and in the wilderness, we meet not only Israel the nation, but also at a later point in scripture, Israel the man. These two come together. Now, in our incredibly individualistic modern society, we, we don't spend a lot of time on this corporate idea, with the result that we miss a lot of biblical truth. But when we come into the history of Israel, there is this corporate mentality that we meet Israel as a people, but we can also meet Israel as it were as a person. You get this tension in Isaiah, where the servant of the Lord at one and the same time can be an individual or corporate as a community. One can represent many. You see this whittling down as you work your way through the, the scriptures where God, having worked his way from mankind, then works his way down through the one representative, the one of his choice. And by a process of narrowing down, down through Israel, down through a remnant, we come to the true Israel. And that's who we really do see in Jesus, the Israel of God's choice. The one who was obedient where the others were disobedient. The one who was faithful where the others were often quite profligate in their ways. Where this one people can be represented in this one person. Incidentally, this still is at the heart of our Christian faith because our position is undefinable and unintelligible apart from the one of God's choice. If you look at the one people who are represented in the one person, so where do we stand? It was one who died. It was one who was resurrected. It is in that one we are made to be one people. And when we come to look at this idea, it's fundamental to see Israel as the people of God's choice, but Israel embodied in the one of his choice. So from that perspective, is it incidental that just as Israel were brought out of Israel, uh, Egypt through the Exodus, they are put into the wilderness? And at the very beginning of his public ministry, the true, ultimate, obedient Son of God, the true Israel, is put into the desert. You see, when you straddle the Bible as a whole, you begin to journey along this pathway, these things begin to, to cohere, they begin to make sense. Israel the nation in the desert, Israel the man in the desert. But look very quickly at Israel the nation in the desert. We can only touch on a few things as we come to look at Israel in the, in the book of Numbers. But first of all, the wilderness was very definitely a place of revelation. 
It was there in the tent, as Whitney was saying earlier on. It was, they went camping with God. It was in that tent God came among them and he dwelt. There the cherubim representing his presence. He was there. No visual representation, but he was there among his people. And what, what always strikes me is a comment of the old sages. The rabbis point to the fact that, now we're going to look at a Hebrew word for a minute, not to be smart, Alex, but just we can't see it in any other language. The desert, the wilderness in Hebrew is Midbar. Three of those four letters, the rabbis point out, make the word Dabar for word. So the rabbis point to the fact that it is in the Midbar, God takes Israel late here so that they will hear the Dabar. He takes them out into the desert, away from extraneous sounds, away from everything else that will distract them because he wants them to hear his word. It is a place of revelation. But that place of revelation is also evidently a place of rebellion. Because as you look at the history of Israel in the desert, it's a place where you see rebellion coming through in several different ways. First of all, as you read the book of Numbers, you're going to be confronted with Israel's struggle with the fact they followed a God whom they could not see. And at the foot of Mount Sinai, do you remember the God of the burning bush? He had given them a name in Exodus 3. He had told them in Exodus 20, you are allowed no visual representation of me. But there is something innate in human nature. We've got to form things. We've got to shape them it's as if we've got to define them and we've got to describe them so we can get our mind around them. So even while Moses was up the mountain, they were trying to visualize God in the golden calf at the bottom. This innate human attempt to try to define, to control, as it were, to shape God. This is a theme that's taken up in the prophets, where the prophet condemns them and rebukes them for trying to shape all sorts of deities manually. But it's no less a crime that we confront today to shape gods mentally, to shape gods and form them so that we can control them. Do you know one of the most profound sentences I've ever read and it impacted my life enormously was a line from Abraham Heschel where he says, when you do theology in the West, when you talk about God, you so often use nouns and adjectives. You define, you describe, you categorize, you get your mind around it. But when God chose to reveal himself to Israel, the primary vehicle for his revelation was neither the noun nor the adjective. It was the verb. He's there to be related to and responded to. Not defined, not described, not classified and systematized and codified. The truth then written down in a series of propositions put in the shelf and then we'll march down the roots to defend the truth but one whom we relate and respond to, one whom we cannot reduce to the size of our mind. But Israel struggled with the God whom they could not see. 
Israel struggled with the leader they did not choose. Because look at the fundamental premise here in, in Numbers. You see, what had happened in Exodus? What was at the heart of the great liberation? The one of God's choice. Do you begin to detect as you listen in stereo a fundamental insight into God's modus operandi, his way of working, the way out of Egypt, the way for salvation, it's through the one of his choice. The one of his choice. But what do you find in Numbers? There's an offense to that. The Israelites, they moan, they groan, they rebel, they reject Moses, they gripe, they groan, they resist Moses, even in his own family circle. Do you begin to see almost, it emerges in this book, that there is this sort of innate human struggle against the one of God's choice. Probably one of the most offensive numbers in our world today. It's that word, not one. We like, in the name of multiculturalism, to offer people a theological Tesco's. You may have this God, you may have that God. Oh, take two, we'll put in a third. You who worship the Creator, well, you may call him Fu, you may call him Vishnu, you may call him Brahma, as Mozart said in one of his Masonic cantatas. We like the name of multiculturalism because that apparently does not cause offence. But there is something deeply disconcerting when graciously but firmly the scripture is taught there is one God and one faith, one Lord, one baptism. And that the way to God is the way of God. Humanity still struggle with that idea. Just as in the desert they struggled with Moses as the one of God's choice. Today, even within supposedly and purportedly Christian circles, they struggle with the idea that Christ is the only one of God's choice. These struggles that were there with the God they couldn't see, with the leader they didn't choose, and the, with the future they couldn't control. Do you see their situation? The wilderness was a place of complete freedom. No wonder, but Heschel talks about the insecurity of freedom, of being in the big broad place, and we get scared. No wonder people can revort, you know, resort to the tightness of, of legalism and fundamentalism because there's a certain security in having it all black and white. But the wilderness is a big place. It's a scary place to be. They couldn't control the future. And what do we find in the history of Israel? Well, at ground level, at base level, they started to complain simply on the level of bread and water. What I find, it's almost you know, ironic in the book of Numbers. When you think of the history of Israel, Israel's problem, well, as they came before God, the first problem they had was, Lord, there's too much water. They stood on the banks of the Red Sea. Lord, we'll never get across this. The Egypts, the Egyptians are coming behind us. There's too much water. That wasn't a few, too many weeks later, they were crying out to the Lord in the desert, Lord, there's too little water. 
Oh, the history of Israel is almost the history of every human being. The extremes to which we can go, the complaints. And it's as, as you explore this situation of Israel, the nation in the desert, you see by total contrast the position that begins the new covenant of Israel, the man in the wilderness. And when we trace in the Gospels, Jesus as the Israel of God coming into the wilderness, don't you begin to see where we started off with disobedience, rebellion, intransigence, with profligacy, with self-indulgence, with sexual immorality. Here you have got the living embodiment of the one who has been so infiltrated by the word of God that he is completely obedient, tested in the wilderness. But look at how Matthew portrays him, the faithful child. He embodies all that God had desired in Israel. In this one, you have one who perf perfectly fulfills God's righteousness. And it's immediately after the wilderness that we find him being tested. Come with me just as we close up to Jerusalem for a moment. Up the Tyropean Valley, we're obviously coming towards the Temple Mount. It's dominated by the, the Temple skyline. Now, as we come up here, very strikingly, you've got the northwest corner of the Temple Mount. Is it possible, and this is a very, very interesting suggestion, as you come up this valley, we're actually looking at the northwestern corner is it from here that Jesus was asked to jump? It's an interesting suggestion because today you can still go and stand at this uh, southwestern corner of the Temple Mount. You can literally stand where Jesus didn't jump. The suggestion is that, you see, this was the place that he didn't jump because they found today a stone lying in this corner. It's a corner stone, and on it, it says, to the place of trumpeting. On the beginning of Shabbat, Sabbath, and at the beginning of the major festivals, they high pr the priests went to this corner, and they blew the shofar to announce the festivals. It's possibly the highest point in the Temple Mount that a human being would have had access to. Was this the place that Jesus was taken? And if he had jumped from here, well, Philip and Fern would have had him on the talk show the next morning. He'd have been talk of the town. He'd got the headlines, because he would have jumped. If he had jumped, he would have jumped down into one of the, well, sort of the Marks and Spencers, the shopping mall of ancient Jerusalem. What's very profound today is that you can walk around this corner. You can literally stand where Jesus didn't jump. Where did he get the strength to resist this? Because fundamentally he was saying to Satan, I will not introduce the kingdom by the strategy that you have. Where did the strength come from? Well, let me in closing give you one thought. The strength to resist came from his time in the desert. I knew it so often preached that the devil came to Jesus after he had been in the desert. He was at his weakest and he was at his most vulnerable. He had 40 days of fasting. 
And yes, in a physical sense, that's true. But remember what I said at the beginning? The sages said the Midbar was the place where God intended Israel to hear the Dabar. It was in the desert God's word came without any distraction. Was it in 40 days that Jesus learned? Truly, no one would live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So that in every single temptation that's recorded in the Gospels, when Jesus was squeezed, Deuteronomy came out. Because he resisted having been marinated by the word that God had spoken. Where there was an inner strength, an inner power, a spiritual power and courage that overcame any physical weakness. That would resist every temptation and would be obedient, obedient even to death itself. Israel the man over against Israel the nation. And as you read the book of Numbers, can I encourage you to listen in stereo? Because as you follow the thirsty Israelites in the desert, we're going to find Jesus' answer in the provision of the waters of life. Where you follow Israel lost on their way at times, you find in the Israel the man, the way and the truth and the life. Where you find Israel often lost in the darkness, you find one who's presented as the light of the world. Where you find Israel rebellion and looking to the snake for healing, you find one who is lifted up to draw all men to himself. Where you find Israel eating the mystery of the manna, you find the provision of God in the bread of life. On the journey to the promised land, as we listen in stereo, we learn so much for the way that lies ahead for all of us. Let's pray together. Lord, as we encounter you in the text, may we be open to learn. For we find ourselves at times in dry, mysterious, and hostile environments. May we learn to follow the one of your choice and in him find the way and the truth and the life. In his name we pray.